Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more. My home had gone into foreclosure while I was in prison, and then I was able to get a job at a fast food restaurant. They gave me a shot, and it was even hard to get that. But how do you provide for a family on that kind of income? The thinking I started to have around, well, maybe this time I can sell drugs and I just won't use them because I have to get my son some new shoes and I can't afford this. So when I started to think that way, I said, oh no, I've got to do something. I've got to think higher because I have to get out of this maze. This cannot be my destiny. This cannot be the end. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is is Labyrinths. I remember the first time I ever committed a crime is for stealing food from the store because my parents would sell their food stamps for drugs. That's Tara Simmons. We heard about her through our friend Jason Flom, one of the founding board members of the Innocence Project. Flom routinely walks innocent people out of prison. I walked Andy Krivak out of jail this morning. It was unbelievable. Andy was in for 24 years. And he told us that Tara's story, which is not about a wrongful conviction, was one of the most amazing stories he'd ever heard. Amanda, I've got to introduce you to the most extraordinary, most badass woman. I'm in awe of Tara Simmons. I can't think of another person who has come from where she came from and gotten to where she is now and where she's about to go is even a better story. So you two are going to be thick as thieves, and I can't wait for you to meet her. And seeing as how Tara was just a short ferry ride away from us, he essentially set us up on a blind date. A blind trauma date. I left home at 13 years old, and thought that the streets would be safer than the abuse I was suffering at home. Being homeless and living on the streets at such a young age, I was kidnapped. And the people who had kidnapped me made me, um, you know, sell myself at 13 and 14 years old on the streets of Seattle. And it was, um, yeah, it's kind of hard to talk about. Yeah, no, I I completely understand. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's really, really hard because it's some of the most invasive and traumatic parts of my life. But, you know, I just remember after I was abducted, becoming pregnant at 14 and trying to figure out how to raise a child alone. uh, And I found my way back into alternative school because Child Protection Services, they were going to take my baby if I didn't go to school And then a classmate of mine went home and told her mom about me. And her mom interceded and came to my little studio apartment that had cockroaches. But I didn't care. Like, welfare was paying for it. The rent was like $300 a month. And I had nothing, but I had safety for the first time in my life. And she, like, cleaned it up and brought food and then became, like, this surrogate mother to me. For a while. Things seemed to be looking up. Tara worked her way through high school and nursing school as a single mom, eventually securing employment as an ER nurse. But then, a spinal injury and a painkiller prescription led her into a new labyrinth of addiction. Her abuse of opioids led her to start dealing them. Trauma so often leads to bad decisions, which cause further trauma and spawn other bad decisions. In 2011, Tara was sentenced to 20 months in prison for theft, drugs, and gun possession. Amanda met a lot of people like Tara in prison. When I 
was in prison. The vast majority of the other women were in there because the risk of going to prison was utterly outweighed by the opportunity to make a life-changing $200 for them. Mm -hmm. And it seems insane that, like, $200 would be enough to make you risk everything and not see your children. But if you can't get that $200 that you need to get food, suddenly anything becomes possible. There was a lot of mental illness, people languishing. You're not a human being. You're just a thing that needs to be here until the date that you expire from this place and then whatever happens to you happens to you. What did your incarceration feel like? I had children outside and I had no control or power to help them. And they were not living in really good conditions while I was there either. And so I was always worried about my kids and whether they had enough food, if they had school clothes, if anybody was taking them to the doctor. They were with my ex-husband, who was not the father, and I'm grateful that he took care of them while I was gone so they didn't go to foster care. But he didn't have financial means to take care of them and also, you know, was struggling with mental health issues of his own. And though she was granted regular visitations with her children— they weren't under ideal circumstances. They don't allow for a lot of physical contact. You can hug once at the beginning and once at the end. You know, it's concrete walls in a cold basement. So for the child coming to visit the parent, it's not a pleasant place. For the individual who's incarcerated, it's not a pleasant place. And then, you know, as soon as your family leaves, you have to go through the dehumanizing strip search every single time. When two ex-inmates meet, they can't help but compare their time inside. It happens whenever Amanda meets another formerly incarcerated person. What was your yard like? How many hours a day out of your cell? Was the visiting, did they get to bring you food or like, what was it like? Yes, so they weren't able to bring me food to the visitation room. They, they would like submit the food to the prison, and then the prison would eventually, over the course of the day, have it brought to my cell. Oh. They weren't allowed to bring you soft things, like yeah. soft cheeses or liquids were no-no. So the way that my stepdad, who his love language is food, yeah, he would find sneaky ways to bring me things that I was not actually allowed to get from yeah. the outside. Yeah. Like on Thanksgiving, he was especially proud of himself for freezing the gravy and cranberry sauce so that it was solid, but by the time it made its way into my cell, it had already, like, thawed and Aww. become gravy and cranberry juice again. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad you had them to help you and keep you strong through that. Yeah, they are a big reason why I feel like I'm still sane. Yeah. For Tara... Her sanity rested on those visitations from her two children. My husband had my kids, and for a while, the first eight months, he brought them every single weekend. And he told me that we were going to be together when I came home, and that was the plan. And then all of a sudden, he just didn't show up, and he wasn't answering my calls. A few more days go by, and I get a call from the main office to come up to public access, and he served me divorce papers. What went through your mind in that moment? Probably that I didn't want to live anymore. <sighs> like, what else can possibly go wrong? Like, how much further down can you go? You'd think that after prison, anything else would be a cakewalk. But freedom after incarceration is a labyrinth of its own. What were some of the barriers that you were facing coming back into the world? My home had gone into foreclosure while I was in prison, but they hadn't repossessed it yet. And so my 
ex-husband was living there with my children, and I could go there. So I had housing. The first barrier was getting a job. And fortunately for me, I had been involved in a church before I had gone to prison. And actually yesterday, a pastor died. And so I'm kind of sad today. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Yeah. This is a good memory, though, in that he stayed in contact with me while I was in prison and hired me to be their cleaning person, right? Mm. I went to work release, and you could only leave on a family pass if you worked 30 hours during the week. And so he gave me a job, even though the church didn't have money in the budget, and even though I'm a horrible cleaning person, (laughs) um, (laughs) because he wanted to make sure I could see my children and spend time with them. And You know, I was very fortunate in that way. But then again, the church didn't have it in the budget, so they could only do that for a month or two. And then I was able to get a job at a fast food restaurant. And it was even hard to get that. There are certain fast food chains that will not hire people with criminal history. I got a job at Burger King. They, you know, gave me a shop. But how do you provide for a family on that kind of income. Right. We're talking minimum wage. Minimum wage, So, like, you had to fight to get a minimum wage job. Yes. 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 And then— And this um, is after you had already had a legitimate—like, well, let me back up. Burger King, totally legitimate job, but you were working an above-minimum wage job before you went to prison. Yes, yes. So— So it was humbling, and it was hard, right? But I think nothing could ever be as bad as being in prison and not being able to hug my children Mm. and not being able to intercede when I see they need help. Working at Burger King, I had tremendous joy, and I was grateful. I try very hard every day to just be grateful because— I'm not in prison, and I can hug my kids. So eventually our house was foreclosed on and repossessed, and then I had to face the barrier of finding housing, not just a landlord that will rent to me with my criminal history, but something I can afford on a Burger King paycheck. Mm -hmm. The thinking I started to have around, well, maybe this time I can sell drugs, and I just won't use them, right? Because I have to get my son some new shoes, and I can't afford this. And so when I started to think that way, I said, oh, no, I've got to do something. I've got to think higher because I have to get out of this maze, right? This cannot be my destiny. This cannot be the end. Tara had gone from homeless teen mom to ER nurse, to drug addict and dealer, to inmate, to fast food. Stuck in the labyrinth, facing a left turn back to prison or a right turn towards endless poverty, she instead looked up. I am in recovery, and I was attending so many recovery groups. I was seeing that it wasn't just me. It was a lot of people. And so that's why I wanted to become a lawyer, is to help people solve those mazes and know all of the different moving pieces that need to be addressed in order to get to the root cause of social and legal issues. And Tara went hard for this dream, partly because, given the stigma of her past, It wasn't enough to just go to law school. She had to prove everyone's judgments wrong, show them she was committed to a better path. I did not just do law school. I had to add building a nonprofit, becoming an advocate in the legislature, doing an externship every single semester, getting remarried, raising a family, commuting (laughs) from Bremerton to Seattle. I had to add all those things. (laughs) And of course, none of it came easily. For the reach of Tara's past was long, and the further she went, the more she found her own criminal history blocking her progress. I wanted to intern at the prosecutor's office because I wanted to learn more about how prosecutors think. So I think it would make me a better lawyer. They're doing the law enforcement assisted diversion program, this very collaborative, working with defenders, working with case managers, helping law enforcement divert people with substance use disorder, and the King County Prosecutor's Office wanted to actually give me an internship. But because of my criminal history, I was not allowed to have access to the database that I needed in order to do the job. And not only that, but the regulation is interpreted so broadly that even if my supervising prosecutor was accessing it, I couldn't even be in the vicinity of where the access was. But Tara fought through these barriers and others. If poverty and prison couldn't beat her, neither could law school. Our law school dean 
gave me the Dean's Medal. She picks one person every year. I think our graduating class might have had about 230 graduates. And so for her to pick me was a true honor. And she, you know, had me stand up in the middle of that and shared my story and why she picked me. So that was really great. And at the same time, underneath it, I was really, really struggling. She was struggling because one month before her graduation, she was hit with one of her biggest obstacles yet, this time by the Washington State Bar Association. April 13th, 2017 is the day I went before the Character and Fitness Board, and they said I didn't have the fitness necessary to become an attorney or the moral character necessary because of my past. That was a really, really, really hard time because my future as a lawyer was unknown. But here I am graduating law school with the Dean's Medal. Right. How surreal is that? Yeah. Like, there are a number of people who not only accept you, but appreciate you and celebrate you. And on the other hand, people who are saying you were unfit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I didn't know if I was going to have to wait a couple more years And I had this Skadden Fellowship. It's this very prestigious public interest fellowship that usually goes to folks who graduate from Harvard or Yale or a very high-ranking school. And what it would do is give me my salary paid for two years so I could help the people coming out of prison that I wanted to help with their legal challenges on the barriers to reentry. So I was at risk of losing this fellowship because the Bar Association wasn't allowing me to sit for the bar exam and become an attorney. And everything I had fought for for the three years prior and all of the great academic achievement and the organizing and advocacy I had done rested on this decision. And it didn't seem like there was a way out of this maze. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. That blow Tara suffered, being denied the opportunity to take the bar exam because of her criminal history, is a rare one because Tara herself is rare. There aren't many people who rise from a life of abuse, poverty, drug addiction, crime, and imprisonment to graduating law school. And the reason for that is partly because there are so many barriers to success that face a person coming out of prison. The blows they suffer are all too common, and they have a long history behind them. In medieval Europe, it was a common law practice for felons to lose all or most of their civil rights upon conviction. This was known as civil death, civiliter mortus. One of the historical milestones of German criminal law, the Bamberg Penal Code of 1507, included such articles as As you have been lawfully judged and banished for murder, so I remove your body and good from the state of peace and rule them strife and proclaim you free of any redemption and rights, and I proclaim you as free as the birds in the air. Ironically, Vogelfrei, free as a bird, came to mean a kind of freedom you didn't want, freedom from the protection of the state and the rule of law. Which meant, as a person declared civilly dead, anyone could kill you without violating the law. Civil death came to North America with English colonists, where it evolved into a set of penalties bestowed on felons. Chief among these was the revocation of voting rights. Felony disenfranchisement, as it came to be known, was on the law books in at least 24 states by the time of the Civil War. And in the post-Reconstruction South, some states applied it surgically to particular crimes in order to bar black men from voting. We've come a long way since then, as most U.S. states now have a process for restoring voting rights after a prison term is completed. But that punitive history is still deeply entrenched. And compared to Europe, where in many countries actual inmates can vote, 
we're a lot closer to the days of civil death. Permanent felon disenfranchisement is still the law of the land in Iowa, Kentucky, and Virginia. As John Oliver put it in 2018, Six million people are unable to vote because at some point in their life they committed a felony. You want me to work, you want me to pay taxes, you want me to make sure I take care of my family, but yet I can't vote. So am I a citizen or am I not a citizen? Yeah, he's got a point because that man is suffering taxation without representation. And historically, that's been a bit of a sticking point for America. As of the airing of this episode, the 2020 election is just four days away. And it may all come down to whether or not felons are allowed to vote. Efforts to restore voting rights to felons have progressed in many states in the last few years. But such efforts still face sharp pushback. In Florida, a 2018 referendum restored voting rights to nearly 1.4 million felons. This is a battleground state that Donald Trump won by just 113,000 votes in 2016. And there are few paths to electoral victory without Florida. A Republican hasn't won the White House without taking Florida since Calvin Coolidge in 1924. Which explains why the Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, has been doing everything in his power to kneecap this restoration of felon voting rights, including signing into law a bill that disqualifies any felons who have unpaid fines and fees. No other class of citizen faces voter disenfranchisement for unpaid court fees. But for those with a criminal record, the right to vote is just the tip of the iceberg. More than half of the states in the U.S. still ban felons from serving on a jury for life. That means that roughly 6% of the U.S. adult population and 30% of black men are excluded from sitting on a jury. This loss of political life is an enormous consequence but it doesn't have the immediate and overwhelming stakes of food and shelter, which can be a challenge when it's difficult to find a job, as employment lawyer Kevin Hyde explains in his TED Talk about banning the box. Nothing stops a bullet like a job. A 2011 study found that employment is the single greatest influence on reducing recidivism. Ex-offenders who receive employment have on average a 16% recidivism rate compared to a national rate of over 52%. The sheer sensibility of that has led to growing reform on this issue. In the summer of 1998, Hawaii passed a law restricting employers from considering an applicant's criminal history until a job offer had been made. Minnesota followed suit a decade later. And now, at least 17 states have fair chance hiring laws on the books. But unfortunately, banning the box isn't a catch-all solution, as Tara found out. You may never see a job application if you're barred from occupational licensing. You might be able to get your RN license, for example. I am an RN. I was able to keep my RN license. But you can't work in certain facilities because we have to do an additional layer of background check, even though you were able to keep your RN license. There are more than 25,000 state restrictions on occupational licenses. And often these licensing boards can disqualify applicants for felonies completely unrelated to the license sought. Some even for arrests that don't lead to convictions. And there are so many careers that require such licenses. Teaching, firefighting, dentistry, accounting, veterinary medicine. The list goes on. And it's not just voting and hiring. A felony conviction impacts virtually every part of a person's life. Civil death is alive and well in 2020. The American Bar Association has done a report. There's 48,000 collateral consequences to a conviction. I can't go to Canada, for example. Why? Because they don't allow you to enter into their country if you have a criminal history. The maze will never end, probably, in my lifetime, unless we do something drastic. Tara managed to overcome the practical barriers of housing and employment, but she still faces barriers that hit closer to the bone. You know, my youngest son, he is now 16, um, but when he came home, he was eight, and he suffered the most with me gone. And 
he's had, you know, issues at school. He was, quote unquote, um, behavior problem because he had trauma from me going to prison and um, <laughs> no crap. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and so he's not, you know, sitting still. He's not focused. He's blurting things out in class because he's looking for peer acceptance. But then his mother is home now and would love to come and volunteer and go on the field trips and show him that he's important. But the school wouldn't let me because of my criminal record. And so I appealed and I lost and it's been a challenge. And then fast forward and he's doing well now. He is now a running start college student and he is on the wrestling team. And the wrestling team needs parents to chaperone and bring all the wrestlers to tournaments. Here I have an SUV. The school district won't let me because of my past. It does impact my son. It does impact his wrestling team in a very tangible, concrete way. It impacts whole communities of people who are missing out on talents and gifts that people who lived through addiction and prison could give. And so we need to change that. And I'm committed to doing that. It's remarkable that with all the civil barriers in her way after leaving prison, Tara was able to emerge with an attitude like this. But perhaps that's because when the official structures of society are designed to deliver various forms of civil death to the formerly incarcerated, the burden of kindness and of aid falls to fellow citizens. And Tara is the first to admit that she wouldn't be where she is today without their help. When I was in prison, volunteers came there. They encouraged me and supported me. And then when I got out and I didn't have transportation to go visit my son, they picked me up and take me there, brought me clothes to the work release. You know, these people who didn't owe me anything and didn't know me, I've had that time and time again. There are so many, so many. Uh, my sponsor in recovery. What does she do? Oh, she's amazing. I met her when I was in prison also. She was coming to share around recovery and the 12-step programs that I'm a part of. And I found out she lived in my county. And as soon as I got out, I went to a meeting and I saw her there and I asked her to be my sponsor. And she's allowed me to live with her when my home was repossessed and I had nowhere to go. Every single holiday, she cooks and invites me and my family, my now husband and kids. And anytime I'm ever having any issues, because life still happens, I know I can call her. All I have to do is pick up the phone, call her. And she's there. If uh, she ends up listening to this podcast, what would you say to her? I would say, Mama Lisa, I probably don't always show you how much you mean to me because I'm so busy. But I hope you know that knowing that you're there for me gives me the resilience to keep going. And I love you. That community of support, more than anything else, gave Tara hope to keep fighting, even after the Character and Fitness Board denied her the right to take the bar exam. It didn't seem like there was a way out of this maze, despite all of these brilliant legal minds around me. But we did find an avenue, just a glimmer of hope, and we appealed to the state Supreme Court. And the ACLU of Washington organized this amicus brief. About 50 organizations across the country signed on to this amicus brief, and several other law professors and high-profile attorneys and it was seven months in between the bar rejection and the Supreme Court hearing. So those seven months are akin to the time I was served divorce papers in prison mm. because I did not know the anxiety that you face when you're going through these traumatic periods can compound all the trauma you've had in your life. And all of that trauma is what the Washington State Supreme Court would use to determine if Tara was morally fit to be a lawyer. Before them was my entire life story. 1,300 pages. <laughs> Everything from childhood 
all the times I've been arrested, the good, the bad, the ugly, medical records, court records. They had everything before them. Every piece of paper that's ever been written about me in my life, I think they had in front of them. Most of us won't ever have to learn what it's like to stand before a group of strangers in robes who have the power to determine if you're worthy of the same rights and freedoms as your neighbor. And yet, it happens every day in the criminal justice system, where most of the time, someone with Tara's background comes out empty-handed. It wasn't the first time that somebody with felony history had been admitted or not admitted through this character and fitness procedure at the Bar Association. It was the first time, though, that the state Supreme Court took one up on appeal and had this open hearing. It was on November 16th of 2017. Representing her before the court was a man who had been in this very spot himself, having to prove his moral worth to become a lawyer. My name's Sean Hopwood. I'm an associate professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. But unlike most people who are in the legal profession, my career did not start in law school. Uh, (laughs) It started in federal prison. I was sentenced to 12 years and three months for my role in five armed bank robberies back in the late 90s. Even though I did not have a bachelor's degree, Mm. I got a job in the prison law library and started studying the law and was fortunate enough to have the Supreme Court of the United States grant two petitions I prepared for other prisoners. And then I started winning cases kind of around federal courts all over the country. I was released in 2008, eventually went to law school at the University of Washington School of Law. Then I clerked for a judge on the D.C. Circuit and then became a law professor. Tara and I had met when I was in law school. I helped her with her law school application process and then just watched as she just took off and had one of the most remarkable records in law school of anyone I've seen. And when Tara went to go before the Washington State Bar Association, I didn't get involved early on because I thought this was a shoe-in, in part because the bar had already admitted other people with felony convictions including yours truly. (laughs) Tara didn't commit five-armed bank robberies with guns. So I thought this was going to be the coronation of Tara Simmons. That's what was so confusing. It was like, why was he allowed to sit for the bar exam when my criminal history was less serious and I had underlying trauma and substance use disorder issues that I have now addressed through good therapy and through recovery, and he didn't even have those mitigating factors. Sean Hopwood argued on her behalf before the Washington State Supreme Court. We're in a hotel in Olympia, Washington. Not a great hotel. And this is an hour before oral argument. It was 7.30. We were supposed to be at the court at 8. I'm dressed in my suit, but all of my notes, briefcase, everything's in my room. And I go to open the door and the lock malfunctions and breaks. (gasps) I go back down and I say, I can't get in my room. The lock is malfunctioning. And she said, oh, don't worry about it. The maintenance guy, he'll be here in 30 minutes. (laughs) I said, you have 10 minutes to get this open or I'm kicking the door down because I must have that stuff and I have to be in court in 30 minutes. I get into the Washington State Supreme Court and it is buck wild. People have (laughs) cell phones. People are taking videos. We have a woman who's doing a podcast for NPR, and she's got this big boom mic over the top of it. <laughs> I'm sitting there locked in trying to focus. People are coming up going, hey, Sean, you got time to take a quick selfie with me. <laughs> and five minutes into my argument, because the courtroom was so full, there were people standing in the back. A woman faints and passes out in the middle of my oral argument, and the court stopped it, and we had to wait like seven minutes. <laughs> The only saving grace is that I went to law school with a newborn and a 20-month-old. Between that and the chaos of prison, I'm just used to having chaos around me and having to lock in and focus in. Mm. I just jumped right back in as if nothing happened. This case presents the court with the core question of 
how long must Ms. Simmons establish rehabilitation to outweigh her serious prior misconduct? We think that the answer to that question is that six years of extraordinary rehabilitation can overcome that misconduct. It is undisputed here that the crimes, the incarceration, and the bankruptcies all resulted from untreated trauma and drug addiction. Counsel, one of the things that caught my attention was that for each of these falling off the straight and narrow, there was a reason. So there was an accident or there was a traumatic experience. We all know that the practice of law is very stressful. What would you point to for us to look at to think that she won't again be a victim of circumstance, if you will? Justice Madsen, nothing will probably be as stressful for Ms. Simmons as this entire process in which she has not relapsed and she has reached out to her support community and character is not static, people change and the law should recognize that. For those of you who haven't spent years of your life in a courtroom, this is the sound of an attorney crushing it. But Tara was still nervous. When you're knocked down enough times, you learn to expect it. When we left the steps of the Temple of Justice, we thought it would be four or five months before we had a decision, because usually that's how long it takes. It wasn't four or five months. Defying everyone's expectations, the court ruled that very same day. Where were you when you heard the decision? I was actually at home, laying in my bed, trying to take a nap, because it was about 3.30 in the afternoon, and I hadn't slept very much the night before. Then I got a text message from a friend who was one of the amicus writers, and she got notice from the court as soon as the order came through. And so she just texted me, congratulations. And I didn't really know what she meant at the time. I thought she meant, congratulations, the hearing went really well. And so I responded to her and I said, I know, I agree. I don't think they're going to say no. I think they're going to say yes. And she goes, no, the order. And I just, <laughs> I called her and she told me the court ruled unanimously in my favor. And I literally, by that time I was in the living room and I just dropped to my knees and I just cried. Mm. Was anyone there with you? My husband was sleeping and my kids were sleeping actually. And then I started screaming and screaming. And so they all came out and... I got to tell them, and everybody was just overwhelmed. Mm. I can't even express the amount of healing and justice that went through my body. They had validated every single experience I've had in my life by making that decision in such a bold way and standing up for people like me. That act is probably the single most time I've ever felt found in my entire life. And seen, it sounds like. Yes. Someone saw you. Yes. Hmm. Six months later, she'd passed the bar, and Tara asked Judge Kevin Hull, who had been supporting her behind the scenes, to swear her in. I, Tara Simmons. I, Tara Simmons. Do solemnly declare. Do solemnly declare. I am fully subject to the laws of the state of Washington. I am fully subject to the laws of the state of Washington. And the laws of the United States. And the laws of the United States. And will abide by the same. And will abide by the same. I will abstain from all offensive personalities. I will abstain from all offensive personalities. <laughs> After her swearing in, Tara gave a brief speech to her supporters, those in her recovery community, other formerly incarcerated people, judges, prosecutors, and advocates. But my vision is also that we will all learn the one skill, one skill that made all of my success possible. To reach out when we need help because we were never meant to go through life alone. It's one thing to reach out, but in this case, all of you reached back. And that's what made today possible. The end, right? Not a chance. 
let's pretend we're making a biopic of your life. Mm-hmm. How does your biopic open? What is that scene? I mean, I hope it's election night. <laughs> um, I hope that's the the scene. Tara Simmons is currently running to represent District 23 in the Washington State Legislature. She won the primary on August 4th, and come November, she could be the first formerly incarcerated legislator in our nation. Not to risk sounding like a campaign rally, but why should people vote for you, Tara? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that... We've never had anybody with my lived experiences as a legislator. We've never had anybody who's been to prison as a legislator. And it's part of the reason we're not prioritizing criminal justice reform, because it's not something that somebody carries with them in their DNA every day. There's a lot of good people that serve in our legislature, but people generally have expertise in the circles and the communities that they're really entrenched in. You know, a lot of people are really excited right now, like, about climate justice and about worker rights, and I'm excited about that, too. But I also bring this unique experience and perspective and a community of people who have never had representation. You can't take Tara Simmons and not take criminal justice reform because that is my identity. Right. That is what I've been fighting for since I got to prison and had this, like, awakening that I don't need to carry all the shame, and it's not just me, and I found my people, and there are so many others struggling with this, and somebody needs to fight for it. That is why I hope people will vote for me and allow me to keep being a passionate advocate and a champion. Is there any part of you that's worried that people you're going to be running against are going to use your past against you as a candidate? Yeah, absolutely, and that's the reason why— We've never had a formerly incarcerated legislator because people don't want to put themselves out there for that kind of risk, right? Mm. But what really encouraged me and what solidified my decision to say yes to the incumbent who is retiring and asked me to run in her place, when she first asked me, I said no because I was concerned about that and I didn't want to put myself through that again. But last year, there was a race not very far from here, Senator Emily Randall was running for the Senate seat in the 26th Legislative District, and she happens to be a friend of mine. And she had posted on her Facebook back on November 16th of 2017 when I was going before the Supreme Court. She had posted, I'm sending good vibes to Tara Simmons and her legal team for victory. And and her opponent took that Facebook post and made a campaign mailer and sent it out to all the homes in her district and said, don't support Emily Randall. She's soft on crime. She supports Tara Simmons, a drug-addicted ex-con who was denied the opportunity to take the bar exam because of her past. What is happening here? Why would somebody do that when I'm not, like, working on her campaign or I don't even live in her district. Right. Like, treating you like dirt on another person. Yes. I do believe people from both sides of the aisle are changing their mind around these stigmatizing labels and policies that are causing people to go back to prison. So it made me say, you know what? They're going to do it whether I run for office or not. And really, I think it's a losing strategy. I'm going to go for it, and I'm going to use it to my strength. And I'm going to say, yeah, this is my life. I've been leading on it the whole time. I have not hidden away from it. So that's my strategy. I can't control what an opponent does, but I do think it would be a kiss of death for them if they do it. (laughs) Whether Tara wins or not, she's not alone but part of a growing movement of the formerly incarcerated aspiring to political office. And it's not just prejudice that's standing in their way, but often actual legal obstacles. Recently, in Ocala, Florida, a newly elected city councilman was barred from taking office due to a 33-year-old felony drug conviction. And then there's Matthew Aragon in New Mexico. Despite being a convicted felon, He ran for a public office and won. 
but under New Mexico law, his criminal record disqualifies him from actually holding the office he was elected to. Aragon pleaded with the governor for a pardon, which would allow him to take office. But the governor declined, and Aragon's position was handed to the runner-up. All these stories are ultimately about forgiveness. Will our society forgive someone for the wrongs they've done, completely and without a catch, once they serve their sentence? Currently, the answer is no. There are dozens of ways that we continue to punish those who've done their time, made their amends. We punish them for life. The irony here is that in this unforgiving society, it's those who've been denied that second chance again and again. People like Tara, who have learned the real power of forgiveness. And it plays out not only in her public aspirations, but in her private life. The thing that really bugs me out about your experience is how, from such a young age, you didn't have your mom. Yeah. Like, that really hurts me because I remember being in my interrogation room and just wanting to talk to my mom and, like, knowing that if I had called my mom, she would help me. And, like, what it must have felt like for you to be young and your mom's not there. Like, that just bugs me out, you know? I know. Everybody needs a mom. Mm. Like a good, healthy mom, right? <laughs> like, I know. My mom, so complicated. She just moved back to my hometown. She lives, like, two miles from me. And this year, my mom thought she'd been gone for 15 years. And she thought just because she's home, she was going to come to my house for Thanksgiving. And I had to set a boundary and say... You can come if you can stay sober. If not, I will see you for lunch the next day and bring you some leftovers. So it is hard. What would your mom have to do to earn back your trust? I think she, you know, at first would have to acknowledge the harm that she's done, mm. right? And I think then she would have to at least have a desire to change and to do different. If she could acknowledge that she's even an alcoholic, first of all. <laughs> um, and it's because, you know, my mom has trauma history. And so I have compassion for that. I see why she ended up the way she is. But she cannot admit it. And she's so deep in her addiction. I do love her. I have compassion for her. But I also have a life now that is very busy. I also have children to protect, don't want to totally exclude her. So it's hard to walk in the gray with so many people. It's like, it's either black or white. And I get into that thinking too. Like for a long time, it was like, I can't have any contact with her because it hurts too bad. Mm -hmm. And it's been so long. It's so much easier to just not have any contact with right. her. So now I'm trying to operate and live in the gray around all of this stuff too. Because when I think about even like criminal justice, all of it, there's also legitimate people who were harmed, right? Like when I announced my candidacy and there was a Kitsap Sun article on Facebook, somebody posted on there was like, I was her neighbor and she caused us so much worry about our safety. Mm -hmm. It's like, I have to acknowledge that too, right? I can't just say all people deserve a second chance, even though I do believe that. But I also think there's a space for people who've been harmed, and like living in that restorative justice area, which is super gray and mm -hmm. individualized. And same thing with my mom. It's like she had a responsibility to me mm -hmm. because she brought me into this world to provide for me. And she didn't, which has caused me tremendous pain throughout my life. How do you translate your own living in gray space to how society could live in a gray space? By making legislation that allows opportunities for individuals to have the label removed. Mm. And then just through all of the criminal justice work that I'm doing, I'm trying to create those gray spaces and have programs that do actual restorative justice with victims. What I hear from survivors and even myself, like I'm sitting here telling you my mom has harmed me. I don't want my mom to go to prison forever, right? I want her to acknowledge the harm. Mm -hmm. 
and change. And a lot of survivors of violent crime, of sexual abuse, are saying the same thing. For me, I have still some guilt over things that I have done that were bad. And for me, the way that I escape that is to know that I'm making a living amends to my community. Yes, when I was addicted to drugs, I sold drugs to other people. I perpetuated crime in my community, and I can't go back and change that. But what I can do is try to be a positive force for good now. I can uplift my community in so many ways, and that makes me feel like I'm doing my part that wasn't sentenced by the court, Mm. but just my moral part, Mm. you know? As we air this episode, the election is just four days away, and we've got our fingers crossed that Tara wins her race. But even more so, we're hoping that our democracy survives the historic chaos we're all living through right now. That can only happen if we all collectively show up to do our part as citizens. And that means, bare minimum, vote. Which, by the way, if you haven't voted yet... Oh my God, stop listening to this. Doing? Go vote. What are you doing? You should be voting. Go vote. get out there You may and never vote. get vote. to vote again. Vote. Just vote. vote. Oh go my God, vote. vote. Vote as if your life, the country, the environment... And everything good in the world is at stake because it is. That being said. It's amazing what people will do to reclaim their civic rights and responsibilities once they've been dumped into a civil grave. Especially when so many of us who enjoy the right to vote don't vote. When those of us able to sit on juries do everything we possibly can to beg out of it. I don't even have a felony record, but with the stigma of my case, I'm never getting on a jury. And I would love to. So here's a radical idea. When someone who has clawed and fought their way out of depths deeper than most of us will ever know wants to do their civic duty, wants to contribute to their community, let them. Join us next time as we sit down with best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell to talk about his character study of Amanda and how a curious drop in violent crime led him into a labyrinth that would become his career. So come on, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At ManUnderBridge. At KnoxRobinson.com. And subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of Labyrinths. This episode was written by us. Edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays with theme music by Josh Udo Karp. These aren't the ads you're looking for. These aren't the ads we're looking for. This podcast is listener supported. This podcast is listener supported. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Come on, boys. Let's visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. (laughs) 